Well, good morning. As our sister Louise pointed out yesterday is the day before Valentine's Day, and we are looking at this passage about divorce and, uh, and remarriage and uh, a lot of heavy topics, uh, but I believe God has something very gracious for us today uh, from his word. And uh, so I invite you to turn with me in Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 and 32. And as you're turning there, uh, in the mid-1980s, a Baptist missionary in Colombia led a couple to Christ, and they, along with their young children, became uh, very involved in the church. And as they grew in Christ, the missionary, his name was Dave, he approached them about leading the children's ministry in the church. After some time in prayer, they came to him and they said, we, um, we have a problem. We're not married. And he said, oh, well, yeah, that's a problem, but we can fix that. Let's get you guys married. And the guy said, well, actually, that is the problem. Um, she is married to someone else. He said, wow, okay. And they began to tell this story. Her husband was a drug lord, uh, Pablo Escobar type. And many, many years ago, he had left the country, moved his operation to Central America. She never heard from him again. The marriage was through the Catholic Church, and to annul it or to have a divorce, it required a lot of money, and it required contacting a very dangerous man. This was neither possible nor safe. So she, li she lived her life, and she met this kind man. They developed a relationship. They moved in together. They had three children. They met Dave, who led them to Christ, and they found grace. And they said, so pastor, what do we do? Now, Dave was my missions pastor when I was in Bible college, and he presented this story to us in a pastoral theology class and said, so class, what do you do? You're that pastor, you're that missionary, this is the story, what do you do? And uh, we were 19, 20 years old and had a lot of opinions about what we should do. <laughs> and we said, Professor Lingo, what did you do? And he said, I'm not going to tell you what I did. And he died a few years ago, and he never told anybody what he did. And when I get to heaven and see him, I'm going to walk right by him, and I'm going to go find that couple, and I'm going to say, what did, what did you do? How did this story resolve? Now, why do I tell you that story this morning? Well, I tell it to you for three reasons, okay? Number one, it's an awesome story that won't fit into many sermons, but it fits into this one. <laughs> Number two, these verses open up a messy topic, right? A messy topic. There aren't clean answers to every question. And some of you may be sitting here and you've been through a lot in life. You've hurt, you've been hurt, you've been wounded, you have found God's grace, but there's some things in the past and you say, what do I do about this or that thing? And there may not be clean answers that will simply resolve some of those questions. And we have to be okay with that. And we as a church have to learn how to extend grace and live these things out in grace looking for the best answers that, that may not answer all of the what-ifs or should-have-beens. And number three, I share this story because it illustrates that this topic is really too broad to cover in one sermon. And there may be some things, maybe a hobby horse of yours, maybe a, a doctrine that you really love, maybe a life experience you really want talked about, and there's just not going to be time to cover it all. So many of you are going to leave here a little bit disappointed this morning, and I hope we can be okay with that. Bottom line is this, the topic of marriage and divorce requires grace, and God gives it abundantly. So as we discuss marriage and kingdom citizens this morning, and potentially a few minutes into the afternoon, 
Um, thank you for laughing. That, that was not a joke. Um, but you will get home in time for the Super Bowl. That, that I promise you. And, and Jason, Elizabeth, you'll make your flight. Okay, it's good. Yeah. But as we talk about this, we'll see three domains where God gives grace when dealing with marriage and divorce issues. Um, some of you have suffered broken relationships. Some of you have suffered spiritual abuse in unhealthy churches. And God has a special blessing from his word for you today. So let's pray together, ask for God's help, and then we'll jump in. God, we are so thankful for your grace. We need it. God, we, we open your word and, and we read here, and it's such an encouragement because we see the heart of Christ recognizing that there's pain and there's heartache and there's messiness, and he gives us grace. Lord, I pray that we'll allow that grace to wash over us this morning. I pray that those battling with, with some guilt or shame from the past will just open their heart and receive that grace today. I pray for those who may be listening who don't know you, that they will hear a message not of condemnation, but an offer of grace that is so much greater than anything the world gives. So Lord, speak to us today through your word. Protect us from human opinion, whether mine, whether one we've brought in from other places, and let us just hear from you. We thank you and praise you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. So the first thing I want us to see this morning, the first domain where we see that God gives grace is here. God gives grace in the marriage covenant. Now, it's important to remember Jesus is not speaking in a vacuum, right? And so to understand and apply his message, we need to hear the context, uh, this is the third of six times in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, you have heard, but I say. And like other topics in this collection of sayings, the Pharisees had misunderstood the intent of the Old Testament scriptures. Uh, we're going to see here where, where Jesus says this. It, it was, has, I'm sorry, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce but I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery. Whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Jesus is referencing uh, a passage from Deuteronomy. So uh, it'll be on screen or you can turn over there. Deuteronomy 24 verses 1 through 4. And here Moses, the law of Moses, makes a provision for divorce for a very specific reason. And it's some kind of indecency is the word the text uses. So it says here, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of her house, and she departs out of her house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife, for she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord, and he shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Uh, now clearly there's a lot of cultural stuff. We'll talk about some of it later, some of it we won't have time to get to. But what's happening here is the Pharisees of Jesus' day have taken this teaching this allowance for divorce, and they've interpreted it in the best way for themselves, right? So it's a bunch of wealthy, powerful men who have taken this teaching and said, well, how can we make this work for us, if that makes sense? 
I think we see similar things happening in the world today. Sorry, I'm having an issue with this. Uh, my ears are kind of deformed, and trying to make this thing stick on them just doesn't, doesn't work all the time. So the Pharisees interpreted it to satisfy their own selfish intent. Now, by the time of Jesus, there was this rabbi who had been teaching. His name was Hillel, and he broadened this teaching out so much that a man could divorce his wife for any offense. Okay, John Stott summarizes it this way. If she proved to be an incompetent cook and burnt her husband's food, or if he lost interest in her of her plain looks, and because he became enamored of some other more beautiful woman, these things were unseemly and justified him in divorcing her. This is a cheap view of marriage, and it betrays a belief that marriage was solely for the purpose of male gratification. If the husband's felt needs were not being met, he could sever the covenant with no consequence. And so Jesus enters into this context, and he says, no, no, you, you've heard this. You've heard Matt, or Deuteronomy 24 preach this way, but I say to you, and he gives one clause for divorce. Now, we'll talk about that in a few moments. But first, what I want us to see is the biblical purpose of marriage, the grace-saturated covenant. See, today, Christian and secular people alike would shake their heads at such an abusively patriarchal mindset, right? But what if it was egalitarian? What if both husband and wife could sever a marriage covenant for any reason they saw fit, right? What if marriage were not about male gratification, but simply convenience, stability, and sex without consequences? And if any of those things became unsatisfactory, either party could end the marriage. What would we call that? Call that 21st century America, right? If you're not a Christian, or if you kind of live on the periphery of church life, you may be asking, well, what's wrong with this view of marriage, right? It's consensual. These are adults. Let them make their decisions. For the next few minutes, I'm going to describe just, just two um, aspects of the, the biblical vision of marriage. Okay, now we get it wrong, and I'll admit that. I'm not asking you to take this and evaluate your Christian neighbor's marriage. You'll be disappointed. Okay, what, what I'm asking you to do is, is this, evaluate understand, hear what the Bible describes, and ask yourself, does this view of marriage promise more joy, more purpose, more wholeness than a marriage without God's design? I don't pretend this is going to answer all your questions about Jesus and the church. I'm asking you to consider, is this plausible and is this inviting? Okay, the biblical teaching is this, marriage is a grace-saturated covenant. I'm going to show you just two ways how. There's many more, just two ways this morning. Number one, marriage is for your wholeness. Marriage is for your wholeness. You remember back in, in Genesis when God said it's not good that a man should be alone? He created all these things, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good. And then he got to Adam, and he said it's not good that man should be alone. And so he's going to make him someone fit, someone like him, someone that corresponds with him. But before he does that... You remember what he does? He parades all the animals in front of Adam and has him name them. And he's not naming them. We have a dog named Quigley. That's not what he's doing, right? He's, he's, he's taxonomizing. He, he's sequencing. He's saying, this belongs in this category. This belongs in this category. He's categorizing all of animal kind. And when he gets to the whole end of it, there's nothing like him. There's no one like him. And that's when God puts him in his nap 
and takes the rib and creates from that rib Eve. And then he says, finally, someone like me, someone who corresponds to me. And now, like all the animals he'd seen, he's whole, right? There's someone like him, someone who corresponds, someone who he can share his life with. And when he puts them in that, in that garden, he puts them there in perfect unity, perfect harmony, there's no contest, there's no competition, there's no squabbling between them. It's perfect, and he puts them there, and that's what God says marriage should be like. Now, now of course, sin comes in in just a couple chapters and messes it all up, right? But that's the, that's the vision, and he gives us some provisions on, on how we can achieve this. In Matthew 19, uh, if you want to look at this passage with me, Matthew 19, very similar conversation between Jesus and the Pharisees about what marriage should look like. And we're going to spend a little bit of time here. Um, I'm not robbing any of Hobson's thunder here because you're going to be watching the, uh, the Summer Olympic Games by the time it gets here. Um, and so th- this, this sermon will be a, a long lost memory by then. But um, Matthew 19 verses 3 through 6, look at this. The Pharisees came up to Jesus and too important. And it says this, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Why did God not clothe Adam and Eve when he first made them? R.C. Sproul beautifully says this. He says, The purpose of marriage is to be fully known and simultaneously fully loved. Don't our hearts just yearn for that? To be fully known. No hidden secrets, no hidden agendas, nothing you're, you're holding back, afraid to be seen. Fully known and simultaneously fully loved. And what Sproul does is he pulls from that simple phrase, naked and not ashamed, and he says that is the picture of marriage. It's fully vulnerable, nothing held back and simultaneously fully loved. What Genesis presents here is not mere physical intimacy, right? Marriage is not less than that, but it's certainly more than that. No secrets, no hidden desires, no hidden dreams, no hidden mistakes, no hidden fears. In your marriage, can you talk about all these things? Can you be that open, that vulnerable? But you know what happens, right? Right now, I've had plenty of stories I could share from my own marriage, but I didn't talk to Rebecca about this, and so I made up a story instead of sharing a real one. Let's say a man wants to buy a house, but his wife is scared of the financial commitment. Realistic? It could happen, right? He's really excited about it, and it kind of makes sense, so she goes along with the plan, but never says anything about her concerns. So the realtor starts showing them homes, and she finds something wrong with every single one of them. Right? The yard's too small, the upstairs, the stairs creak, whatever. This drags out for months until they finally settle on, on one of the houses that neither of them are terribly excited about. But then the HVAC system dies. So they hire Stuart to come fix it at a great price, and he does quality work. <laughs> but she says to her husband, I, I knew we couldn't afford this house, and I only did it because you wanted it, and we shouldn't have ever bought this. Right? And now they're super frustrated with each other. There's all kinds of anger and pent-up frustrations and all this conflict going on. And he's thinking, why didn't you tell me? And she's thinking, how did you not know? The signals were everywhere. 
Can you, can you imagine living through this, right? I mean, this is, this is what happens because we're, we're, we're clothed in our marriages. We, we hide. We hide things. We, we cover things up. We don't share. Naked and unashamed means he asked, he asks, do, do you really want to do this? And she says, well, I'm scared. I mean, it kind of makes sense. We need a place to live and with the market and blah, blah, you know, it kind of, yeah, I get it, but I'm, I'm afraid. And they work through that. And maybe they decide it's not the right time. Or maybe they decide, hey, we're going to do this together, even though there's some fear and uncertainty. And now they can look at each of those problems, right? And now they can talk about the more important things like the age of the roof, or do we have to pay a homeowner's association fee or whatever those things are. And they can work through it together, open, free. Now, let's take that principle to real issues, like talking with your spouse about the person at work who flirts with you. Does he or she know about that person? Are you open about that? Your fear that your aging body isn't as attractive as it used to be. The recent trauma that is presenting a struggle with, with some aspect of your faith. You talk about that. Or that hurtful thing your mom said 27 years ago that, still causes you to doubt your worth or thousands of other secrets we hold. Marriage by God's design is the safest place to bear your soul. This should be the place where you expose it all and say, this is me and trust that your spouse will embrace you in your nakedness and say, and I love you. That's the biblical view of marriage. That marriage, in contrast to divorce for any reason, is a completely different covenant. Totally different relationship. They're not the same thing. The second purpose of our marriage is this. Marriage is for our testimony to the world. Now, in context here in Matthew, the Beatitudes are the characteristics of the Christian. Right? We talked about those several months ago. The, the Beatitudes and how this is how we should live out our, our Christian life. And Jesus says that when you live this way, you point people to God in verses 13 through 16. Let's actually go ahead and read those. Uh, look at those, Matthew 5, um, 13. It says, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. Who is? Christians. When we live this way, when we live out the Beatitudes, we are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. What's next then in context are these arenas in life where the gospel is displayed. We handle anger differently. Right? Christians should talk about our political opponents in a very different way than the world does. We handle anger differently. We handle lust differently. Right? We see the scantily clad person in the gym not as an object of our gratification, but as a fellow image bearer, worthy of dignity, and ourselves as subject to that person's maker. We handle lust differently. We see marriage differently. We are faithful to a covenant made between two people and a holy God. Not just to stay married even though we're miserable, but to weave an intimate life together that is whole and filled with joy and respect. And that's what the Pharisees didn't understand. And so they had a cheap and abusive view of marriage and divorce. 
And that's why Jesus had to address it. And that's why so many, so many today are, are bearing scars and pains and hurts from, from current struggles and from previous struggles because we don't understand the biblical view, the vision of marriage. Secondly, I want us to see this. God gives grace when the covenant is broken. God gives grace when the covenant is broken. Now, if you love a little controversy, this is the part of the sermon you came for this morning, right? I'm not worried about it, right? Hobson should be worried about it. Uh, Hobson said, he said, hey, Eli, would you like to preach on February 13th? And I said, sure, what's the text, right? I'm thinking we're going to be way into chapter 6 by now. So I'll be talking about the Lord's Prayer or, or you know, casting all your cares upon Jesus kind of stuff. And he's like, hey, it's, it's 5, 31 through 32. It's about divorce. I'm headed out of town. See you later. Bye. <laughs> like, thanks, buddy. Okay. Um, the first time he asked me to preach, it was on a, so he gave me the sermon title. It's like this passage from Acts. And he's like, the sermon title is Keeping Christianity Weird. Here you go. Bye-bye. Right? And then he asked me to preach on murder. And, and now divorce the day before Valentine's Day. So, anyway. Um, the stage, as we've seen, I'll talk more about it in a little bit. It's actually good stuff. But uh, as, we, as we've seen, the Pharisees, like many today, have a very liberal view of divorce. And in Matthew 19, Jesus says the same thing. We're going to be back uh, there for the next few verses of Matthew uh, 19. But before we talk about these things... I, I want to say this. I want to say that I usually, in my life, looking back on sermons I've heard on this topic, I usually hear things because Jesus is going to talk about the hardness of men's hearts, right? God, God didn't want us to be divorced, because, but because of the hardness of your hearts, he allows it in these certain circumstances. And, and that's true. The way I've heard it preached so often is this, God didn't want to do this thing, but because you're so stubborn, he said, fine, you can have it this way. I don't think that's the tone at all. I think the tone that, that Jesus is preaching these things is this, is that, that the hardness of sin has caused so much anguish in many of your lives, right? You've been sinned against. You've been hurt. You've been abused. You've been cheated on. Now, now some of you have been the ones doing the cheating and the hurting and the abusing, but nevertheless, there's, there's this pain, this anguish that comes from sin. And because of that reality, here's an escape, right? Here's a way to, to biblically and faithfully step away from some of the, the worst pain in the human experience and, and still follow God. And we're going to talk about specifically how that plays out in a few different instances. But I think that's the tone. Jesus isn't saying, because you're so stinking stubborn, fine, you can have this. He's saying, because you've been so hurt, here's a place of grace. Here's a way to find peace, even in the midst of some of the worst anguish. The Pharisees didn't see it that way. And so they ask, why did God, look at, look at verse nine, or chapter 19, verse 7. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? Now, Moses never commanded it, right? We read the Deuteronomy passage, right? He allowed it. He didn't command it. So they've already distorted the teaching. Jesus says, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. 
right, to protect them. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. We'll see three occasions from Scripture when hard hearts make divorce permissible. But I want you to see three things before we get into that. Number one, none of these require divorce. God never commands divorce. He allows it in certain circumstances. Secondly, all of these are for the purpose of rescuing a person from a broken marriage covenant. There's a lot of cultural stuff going on in the background there, like protecting women from becoming destitute. Uh, We don't have time to cover all that stuff. Uh, But the, the purpose is rescuing a person from a broken marriage covenant. Thirdly, Jesus is speaking to people Uh, living in a certain legal context in which the wife had no rights for divorce. Now, Jesus is correcting bad theology. He's not trying to fix a legal system. And we'll see in 1 Corinthians 7, where Paul provides the same um, allowance for divorce for, for women as he does for men. And so it would not be wrong at all to read our passage here in Matthew um, in a a more general context, and we can apply these principles uh, regardless of gender. All right, so let's look at the specifics. Three circumstances where Scripture allows divorce. Number one is adultery. Uh, We just read it here in in Matthew 19. It's the same word Jesus uses in in Matthew 5.32. The word is porneia, which covers the broad category of sexual sins from pornography to adultery uh, to any other sexual sin. It's a very broad category. Uh, it's it's, It's a huge category. But we need to carefully hear the testimony of Scripture, right? Is is Jesus saying that if your spouse gets caught up in pornography, that you can leave your spouse? I don't think that's the heart. I don't think that's the intent. Is it saying that that if if your spouse um, has a flirtatious relationship with a coworker, that you can can leave your spouse? I don't think that's what he's saying. All right, we need to consider the broader testimony of Scripture, uh, consider the Old Testament story of Hosea and Gomer. You guys know the story? We, we Hobson preached through Hosea here um, a couple months ago. And Hosea was a prophet. God commanded him to marry the prostitute, Gomer. She was repeatedly unfaithful. And Hosea, as a picture of God's faithfulness to adulterous Israel, kept bringing her back. Now, I cannot imagine the anguish that the prophet Hosea lived through. But that was God's calling on his life, and that's what he did, and he he illustrated for us our unfaithfulness to God and God's constant faithfulness to us. And you remember Hobson's illustration of the train uh, from the previous paragraph, right? He he talked about this train, and, and he said that all sexual sin, right, a lustful look, an intentional seeking out kind of look, flirting, prolonged conversations, these are places where the train stops on its way to the physical act of adultery as, as the final destination. And at what point then, we may ask, if we're talking about porneia as a reason for divorce, at what point is the spouse able to make the claim, you've committed porneia on our marriage, so I'm out of here? That's the wrong question. Right? That's, that's absolutely the wrong question. This is not a clause to get out of a marriage. This is a provision to protect a person who is in a marriage where the covenant has been irreparably broken. This means that if your spouse has sinned and desires reconciliation, the heart of God says, as much as is within you, reconcile. 
This should never be done alone. Okay, if this is you, if you're living this, or if you've been in this situation, talk to one of the elders, right? Get, get some help. Talk to Hobson. He's the guy who made me get up here and preach this passage. Right? Talk, talk to him. Let God's grace come to you through his church. Let the church be the church and walk with you through this pain. But know this, if the covenant is truly irreparably broken, God gives you grace to escape it and find freedom to marry again or not, depending on how he leads you and guides you. We good so far? We good? Okay. All right. Number two, abandonment. Look with me at 1 Corinthians 7. I don't think I have, do I have this one on screen? I don't think I do, do I? We do? Okay. 1 Corinthians 7, it'll be up there. Um, And here the Apostle Paul is talking about a situation in which an unbelieving spouse desires to be free uh, from a a believing spouse. Look with me at verse 12. To the rest I say, he says, I, not the Lord, which is super strange and confusing. Paul is saying this is my opinion, and yet it's an inspired scripture. So I think we can... We can grab a hold of this and say this is truth, okay? Um, to the rest I say that if a, any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Now, Peter fleshes that out a little bit more for us and what he shows us there is that by your good testimony... You, you may indeed lead your unbelieving spouse to Christ. Okay, and you, we've seen this happen, right? You've seen this happen in people's, in people's stories. Um, verse 14, uh, verse 15. Uh, but if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? How do you know husband, whether you will save your wife. So it's pretty straightforward, right? If an unbelieving spouse wants to leave you, you are not bound to the covenant. But what if your Christian spouse leaves you? What if your your believing husband or wife says, I'm out, it's done, it's over, and files for divorce? What then? Well, if we back up to chapter 5, verse 11, or if we look at Matthew 18, the church is commanded to address chronic sinfulness, uh, and to treat such a person as, as an unrepentant or as an unbeliever. Right, so I, I don't think that Paul is getting too, I mean, we could nuance this thing to death. I don't think he's getting too much into the weeds. He's saying, if your spouse is disobedient, your spouse is not walking with Christ, your spouse is not a believer, and decides to leave, let them go. If your unbelieving spouse leaves you, you are free uh, to remarry if you're led by God to do so. Um, so pretty straightforward. I don't think we need to belabor that point much. We good? Everybody good? We're all on the same page. All right. The next one is sticky. All right. Cases such as these. 1 Corinthians seven fifteen. Look at this passage. If the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you peace. This third category is difficult, and I ask you to think 
carefully and prayerfully with me on this. I joked earlier about Hobson punting this passage to me. Uh, the truth is this is the only time that Hobson asked to meet with me before the sermon and make sure that we're on the same page theologically. Uh, we talked about this verse. We talked about an article that Wayne Grudem wrote about this verse. Uh, the matter of marriage and divorce is a top-tier issue. Okay, this is something that can hurt people deeply if it's handled too severely, and it can hurt churches deeply if it's handled too casually. So take this, what I'm about to say, and examine it carefully and have a great time at your fellowship groups this week. <laughs> Kicking this one around, all right? Paul is dealing with the matter of abandonment. And he comes to verse 15, and he uses this obscure phrase, in such cases, right? In such cases. Now, it doesn't sound obscure in English. It sounds like a pretty straightforward phrase. However, Wayne Grudem points out that in Greek, it's an unusually specific phrase that pops up on occasion in classical literature. It doesn't show up anywhere else in the New Testament, but he finds it throughout uh, Greek literature uh, from the classical period. It wasn't until the advent of language study software that anyone cross-referenced things like this because it would have been too difficult with the stacks and stacks of documents. But now that we have the software, you can do a little search and let the computer do the work for you, and here you go. So he did this cross-reference. He did this study on this phrase, and he found many, many places, uh, 52, across the corpus of Greek literature where this phrase is used, and he studied it out. And what he found is, is this, that he did not find one example where the phrase implied situations that were exactly the same as the one named by the author. So Grudem's argument is that Paul is saying, in cases like, but not limited to, abandonment. Does that make sense? So he's saying Paul is being more broad. Paul is talking about one thing, abandonment. And then he says, in, we may say similar. And in similar cases, you're not enslaved, you're not bound to that marriage. If an unbelieving spouse wants to leave you, let that person go, you're free. And he says, and there's things like it. There are cases like this, not abandonment, but things like abandonment. And in those cases too, you're not bound by the marriage covenant. And then he asks the question, well, what would these cases be? Grudem says it would be situations where there is no reasonable human hope that the man and woman will ever again function as if they are husband and wife. The marriage has been destroyed. I'll mention just two possibilities. This could be a longer discussion. He lists several. I'm going to talk about two that I think are pertinent and useful in the modern context where we live. The first is this, abuse. Now, abuse can be difficult to define, can't it? We're sinners. We get angry. We're all prone to say abusive things when we're angry. Now, that's not what we're talking about here, right? When we're talking about abuse in a relationship. We've seen it. We, we know it when we see it, and it's, it's very ugly. It's very harmful. And Grudem points us back early, early on in church history to a man named John Chrysostom, he lived uh, in the years 349 to 407. So we're going way back, 4th century, early church, and he was one of the uh, predominant writers of that time period. And he says this, and I'm, I'm going to, I have like this, he wrote in Greek, and the translation is difficult, so I'm going to try to modernize it as I read this quote. But it says, a brother is not under bondage, nor yet a sister in such cases. And he's working, John Chrysostom is, directly from this passage here, uh, 1 Corinthians 7.15. 
And he says he's not bound, he's not in bondage in such cases. If day by day he, uh, he punch you and keep up fighting on this account, it is better to separate. For this is what Paul is talking about when he says, God has called us to peace. For it is the other party who furnished the ground of separation, even as he did who committed adultery. Saying when, when one member of a marriage breaks the covenant through something like abuse, and I've seen many cases that are so ugly, so harmful, where a spouse is abused and worn out and in danger, and it's prolonged and it's unrepentant, and the marriage is undeniably broken. And what Grudem and others, they look at this passage and they say, it's okay, you can be free. Does that sound reasonable? Another case that the Grudem talks about is unrepentant addiction. I knew a man who used to be a, a mean drunk. Night after night, he would come home from the bar angry, punching the walls, sometimes his wife. And eventually, he'd pass out on the floor. And she'd sit down there. She was a believer. And she'd sit down there on the floor with him. She'd hold his head in her lap. And she'd stroke his hair. And she'd pray for him. And one day he said, enough. And he gave his life to Jesus. And by the time I knew him, he was training for the ministry. And I don't think I've ever seen somebody who loved his wife as much as that man. But you and I both know the story usually doesn't end that way. And at what point then does the body of Christ come around that person and say, it's okay. You can be free. And I think Paul is saying here, at least Grudem is interpreting it this way, right? Where Paul may be saying, in similar cases, this is like abandonment. That They've checked out on the marriage. It's okay. You can be free. God extends grace. Now again, be careful. Be very careful. If you're living in this, get help. Right? There's going to be people standing at the white flag after the service who want to help you. Get help. If you know somebody who's going through this, be very careful that you're not just that sounding board that's going to say what they want to hear, right? Don't be that friend who's like, yep, you're right, absolutely. Don't be like the mom who says, well, I told you you shouldn't have married him in the first place, right? Be careful. Be slow. Be methodical. Be biblical. Seek prayer. Seek counsel. Do it well. Do it right. But help. All right, I got off script a little bit. We're good. Okay. Again, let the church do what the church was designed to do. Lastly is this. God gives grace for covenant faithfulness. Now, some of you aren't married and you've been patiently participating in the service. Thank you. Thank you. I have a word of application for you. Um, do you have Oneida flatware in your house? Anybody? Right? And the single guys are like, I don't know. Does Walmart sell it? And <laughs> what is flatware? Uh, so there's a good chance that your grandma's fancy silverware, right, that only comes out at Thanksgiving and Christmas was made by the Oneida company. Uh, they are still one of the major manufacturers of quality flatware. 
What many people don't know is that they were founded by a man named John Humphrey Noyes in 1841. Does anybody have any clue where I'm going? All right. You know, Craig knows? Okay. Buckle up. This gets crazy. Um, Humphrey Noyes in 1841, he started a secretive Christian communist community. They built a compound outside of Oneida, New York, where they all lived in utopian harmony together. Doesn't that sound nice? It's not. They believed that after conversion, Christians were free from sin and could therefore live however they pleased. And what pleased them was what the 1970s called free love. Their society devolved into a polyamorous sect where any member could have sex with any other consenting member. They believed in their doctrinal statement that every wife was the wife of every man and every man was the husband of every woman. After a while, they came to realize there was not a lot of money to be made in heretical communal free love. So, yes, they started making high-end silverware. And they were crazy successful. So, yes, your grandmother's fancy mashed potato serving spoon was probably handcrafted by a pseudo-Christian sex cult. Look it up. True stuff. Now you, like 99% of people who hear such a story... So Holly, how am I doing? Before this service, Holly said, I hope you're interesting. Is that... Am I meeting the mark? Okay. Okay. So like 99% of people who hear this story, you're going to say, that's weird. And you're right, that is super weird. Yet much of our society lives exactly like this, only serially, rather than one at a time. One partner after another, after another. No consequence. It doesn't matter. It's just sex. That's what people will say, right? So single people, hear me. This is not okay. This is weird. And, and most of history has known this is weird. It's only been in recent years that society says, hey, it's okay. As long as it's one at a time, it's okay. 1 Thessalonians 4. 1 Thessalonians 4. We're going to look at this passage real quick. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3. When I was young and single, we'd go to youth camp and say, I just want to know what God's will is for my life. Right? Does he want me to be married? Does he want me to be a missionary in Africa? I just want to know what God's will is. And Paul says, okay, this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. And all the teens at youth camp are like, I wish God would just tell me what his will is for my life. <laughs> this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality that each of you know how to control his body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one, listen, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. We told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. And we may ask, how 
is living a life of sexual freedom, how is that defrauding, or what's the word in this translation? Um, Verse 6, transgress or wrong my brother. Well, that person you're sleeping with will likely be someone's spouse one day. You are taking something that's not yours. You are violating someone's future marital covenant. You are violating your own future marital covenant that will one day exist between you and your spouse. You see, God is not bound by time as we are. He sees the whole thing at once. So it doesn't matter if you're living in a polyamorous sex cult in Oneida, New York. It matters. But that's not categorically different than going from partner to partner to partner who's not your spouse. It's the same thing. It's just spread out. God sees the whole thing, and he calls us, it says here, he calls us to holiness. He's called us to purity and holiness. So let's wrap this up. I'm hungry. You guys hungry? All right, let's do this. Single, divorced, married, how do we pursue faithfulness? Um, I want to invite you to the book of Hosea. One last passage we're going to look at. Um, Hosea chapter 14. I thought I put a, oh, I did put a bookmark there. That's convenient. Hosea 14, and we're going to look at verses 4 through 7. You remember the story of Hosea, right? God is illustrating through his prophet this, this story. He's showing the world through Hosea, I've called my people, I've made them mine, and they leave me for other lovers. And so he painfully illustrates this through a marriage. Now, why, it sounds like that's unfair to Hosea. That sounds extreme. It sounds like he's going over to the top here. But what that's showing us is, is we can imagine, some have experienced what that pain is like. And he's saying that's the same kind of pain. That's the same kind of heartache, the same kind of tragedy as our adulterous relationship with God. And so he illustrates this. He plays it out in the life of Hosea. And then at the end of the book, like like the prophets do, at the end of the story, they point us to a glorious future. And a lot of you may be looking back. This may have brought up stuff you've not thought about for years. And my intent is not at all to drudge up feelings of guilt or shame or pain. And my encouragement is, like Hosea is about to do for us here, is not to look back on what's happened, but to look forward to the day when God makes it all right, where every broken thing is made whole. So look with me, Hosea 14, verse 4. God says, I will heal their apostasy. Right? He may be saying, I'm the one who sinned. I'm the one who broke the covenant. And he's saying, yes, and I will heal that one day. It will be, it's forgiven, it will be snuffed out, right? I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely. My anger has turned from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take the root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive and his fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. So he's picturing a fully restored nation, functioning once again in all of its glory and all of its wonder as it was intended to be. And so Christian, 
if your marriage has suffered, single person, if, if your life is, is struggling for purity, look to the future. One day, one day, all the sins will be completely forgotten. All the glory, all the, the wonder, all the closeness that you're longing for, it will be yours in Christ. That's our hope. That is our motive. That is our weapon to fight for purity, to fight for wholeness, to fight for our marriages. I don't know the state of your marriage or your singleness, right? You may be feeling like the Colombian couple and you're thinking, my story doesn't fit any of these examples. I'm not sure where to go with all this stuff. You need grace, and here it is. The bottom line of marriage, and the bottom line is this. Marriage and divorce requires grace, and God gives it abundantly. He invites you to receive it today. So I'm going to pray for us, and I encourage you. If you have any business you need to do, if you need to talk to somebody again, there will be folks over here. Uh, if you need to sit in your seat and pray for a little while, that's perfectly fine. Um, if you need to take your spouse out on a date today, I encourage it. Um, just don't go to a sports bar. They're all going to be full, all right? Let's pray. God, you are so, so good to us. Father, we, as sinful people, we, we wander, we stray, we hurt one another, and we hurt you. So God, forgive us. God, thank you for the grace that you give so abundantly, and I pray for many who need it. God, I pray that they would receive it today, that they wouldn't hold back. But as you describe in Genesis, they would be open they would be vulnerable, and they would reveal all of that heartache, all of that pain, all that sin, first to you and then to their spouse, and find grace and wholeness once again. Lord, I pray for those who may be in bondage to an abusive, dangerous relationship. Give them deliverance. Give them courage to seek the peace that you offer in Christ to seek the freedom that you offer them. Lord, I pray for them today that, that we as the church would gather around them and love them well. Father, you're so good, so good to us. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.